So I've been I've been doing a lot of research on you uh, in the last little while here, and I'm, I'm crazy impressed with your background. Like you, you you were an overachiever, very very much I would say like myself a little bit. You were early on an overachiever where you were getting like obviously you didn't you uh, you can go into Yale and stuff like that where you had a 3.0 GPA I think right, and uh, you could go into other things, but. You went into BlackRock. I mean, this is just, you have a great storied background. I want to start from the beginning, though. Like, where did you, where were you born? How yeah. does it all work? Where did you start your career, school? Get Go through all of it for me. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, so, hello, everyone. And my name is Kehi. <laughs> I grew up in, born and raised in New York City. Uh, I was born in 1979, so I'm 44 years old, to put some context around it all. Uh, my parents are Cambodian. My mom's half French, half Cambodian. And they immigrated to the United States in 73, so right around the time of the Cambodian genocide. Uh, my dad worked for the United Nations, and they came here with just a job, I think $500 in savings, you know, well-educated in, in, uh, in France. And... They had two kids, myself and my younger sister, and they're incredible parents. My dad had always said, he had this saying, we may not be the smartest, but we're the hardest working. So I'm sure that theme will come across in this conversation. And yeah, we were, I went to an international school on a quasi scholarship. We were lower middle class when we grew up, in, when we were younger and kind of, I'd say my parents were middle, I mean, what does middle class in a big city even mean anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they, by, by Americans, by US standards, they're, you know, middle class and simple story. Story was put your head down, do your work. Work will lead to opportunity. Opportunity will lead to money. Money will lead to happiness. Boom, end of story, right? That was the, the playbook that my parents had. And, you know, in a very kind of typical child of, you know, blue collar, child of child of immigrant story, everything was focused around our education. So, you know, they didn't make us do chores because they're like, just go to your room, just keep doing your homework, keep practicing your violin, all the cliches of an Asian American, uh, of an Asian American household. So, Put my head down. Um, I was a very shy, um, awkward uh, kid. Very, very skinny. I walked with a bit of a strange gait. Uh, I went to the same K through 12, so I was constantly relegated to the friend zone uh, in the romantic department. And one thing that I did do, I had a knack for kind of figuring things out. and so I was just, I just always knew how to just figure things out. And so I speculated in comic books and baseball cards. So I would kind of trade them like stocks as a 11 year old. This was pre way well beyond, well before the internet. So, you know, I, I would buy what I thought would be cards that would go up in value, sell them at a flea market, use the profits, buy new cards, look for new flea markets, things like that. When I was 16, I taught myself HTML. Uh, and started making websites for the local businesses, uh, making like, I mean, it's crazy, like 20 bucks an hour in 1995 as a that's 16 good. year old. That's real that's good. Like, yeah, that's probably like $40 an hour today, cash. Um, I took that money, I invested it in the stock market. I bought my first shares of S&P 500 when I was 16 years old. Again, this is all, keeping this is all pre-internet. So if you want to learn stuff, you got to like go buy a book at a bookstore, right? There's no online resources for any of this stuff. So I always had that knack for entrepreneurship and um, feel free to, to accelerate or pause me. I'll, I'll try to speed it up and we can double click wherever. Oh, you're good. You're good so far. We, I went to Yale 
And at Yale, I was a, I was actually a very mediocre student. Um, I majored in computer science. I was a valedictorian in my high school and Yale is uh, a very competitive place, even in 1997 and, um, yeah, 1997. And, uh, I was very average academically at Yale. Everyone there was a valedictorian. And not only that, they weren't kids with like Asian parents, you know, they were kids whose parents went to Yale and whose grandparents went to Yale and whose parents talked to them about stocks and businesses and investment banking at the dinner table. And I was just like this, you know, nerdy Cambodian kid from New York. That's like, Hey, I'm here to get education. And so put my head down, um, started to come into my own in college. Um, I was, uh, you know, became way more social. I started lifting weights, started dating, uh, started partying, alcohol, all that fun stuff that happens in college for, for some. Um, and, you know, I, I got it. I did well at Yale. Um, nothing spectacular from an academic perspective. And I got recruited to, um, so I was at a crossroads. I thought I would go work. Remember, this is 2001. So the right around the crash of dot com. I was recruited. I, I thought I would go work at a software company. So, you know, back in the day, Microsoft was reign supreme, you know, Sun Microsystems were, you know, Intel, like those were Cisco, like those were the companies, those were more hardware companies, but those were the companies du jour. Um, not good enough to get a job at Microsoft, but uh, investment banks were hiring like crazy uh, in 2000, which I graduated 2001. So they're hiring in 2000, got a job in investment banking. Um, I had no idea what that was as I was interviewing for these companies. I was, I, I, I it took me a while to figure out what due diligence was, you know, they're like, tell them about due diligence. And I'm like, oh, what the, what the hell is due diligence? <laughs> uh, got a job at, I guess what would be considered a second tier investment bank, uh, called Broadview, which is now part of Jeffrey's. I did that for 18 months. Didn't really last long. I hated the lack of freedom. I hated the work hours, 980, 90, 100 hour work weeks, sleeping at your desk, um, those kind of jobs. I pivoted into another area of finance that was growing that was called Fund of Hedge Funds, which is basically helping large endowments and institutions invest in hedge in like kind of the growing hedge fund industry. And I stayed there for the remaining 12-ish years. Uh, few companies, but most of that time at BlackRock. Uh, I was um, one of the youngest managing directors at BlackRock. I got promoted to managing director at 31 years old, which is, I don't know, eight to 10 years before the expected uh, kind of time you get that promotion. Uh, and then at 35, I said, fuck it. Um, this isn't how I want to spend the rest of my life. I was just bored. I thought it was boring. Um, had saved some money, you know, uh, like I said, enough money to, uh, enough money to do something, but not enough money to not do anything. Um, and so I took, uh, I quit without a plan and I said, I'm just going to take some time to figure out what I was going to do. I had a one year old, a one year old at the time, my wife's an artist. So we were living off of our savings, traveling around the world, and then somehow realized that I liked writing on the internet. And I started writing on the internet. I started writing about like this kind of weird relationship that a lot of us have with ambition. You know, we're ambitious, but sometimes it feels healthy. But most of the time, the ambition feels totally unhinged. Um, there's a lot of numbing involved. There's a lot of alcohol involved. There's a lot of workaholism involved. There's a lot of denial of, of one's feelings. Um, I started writing about that stuff, uh, and I've been writing about it ever since. I think the writing has evolved mostly through a newsletter slash blog, 
But over, it's been almost nine years of, of creating online uh, under the banner of Rad Reads, um, writing, podcasting, videos. Um, and my source of income has been a mix of online teaching, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching and group coaching and some of the more traditional ways you make money online, sponsorships, affiliates, things like that. It's great. Wow. That's a... That is a long hit. You really have that down. So that's a long <laughs> hit. Very, I mean, it's very impressive to be at BlackRock at, you know, 31 years old. Um, I didn't really, I, again, that seems like some something that's just unobtainable. You know what I mean? Like, and you did it. So respect. I, I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people I know very much like you, I feel like I'm the same way where, you know, I tried to overachieve, but I did it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you did it because like, basically that was the only road, right? I mean, in a way that was the only road for me too. Like I didn't know any other way to go. It was just, Hey, go work at like a tech. My first tech company was like, Oh three that I, you know, I was working at and it just went, Hey, chase the corporate, you know, chase the status, mm -hmm. chase the money, chase the, you know, the higher titles and like the more responsibility and get the fancy car and the house and all that stuff. Like I, I feel the same way that you do, except for I'm a little bit older. I'm older than you. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like I've, I've reached that spot like maybe three, four years ago, instead of like how, how soon you reached it. And like you actually mm -hmm. went off and did your thing. That is amazing. So I want to dig into a lot of that because a lot of people want, will probably want to know a lot of stuff about you because you're kind of living the dream, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you worked at BlackRock, you had enough money to like leave, right? You didn't have enough money, like you said, to retire, but you had enough money to like, at least you don't, you, you weren't like financially like insecure, right? So you were like, hey, I made $4 million, right? And now I have like my, my, my cost of living is like 200,000 a year and I'm going to be okay with this because, you know, I'm going to get to somewhere where I can find another place where I can make money again. So yeah. I'm not, because, you know, in theory, you have like a personal burn rate, right? Like $4 mm -hmm. million is your that 200,000 a year was your burn rate. This is what yeah, we need exactly. Yeah. So like you, you were still doing the same thing. You're just, you, you were just treating yourself as like a startup in a way. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Know. And to clarify for people that I had, when I left, I had $4 million in savings and I was spending 200,000 a year, roughly. It's, yeah. That number is higher now. Yeah, I believe it. But I mean, you're also making, I'm sure you found ways to make, you know, to turn your burn rate upside down, right? Like you're probably you're talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, so when you were, when you say, when you were in like, when you say it was grammar school or high school, you were like, you didn't really kind of like, you were doing well in school, but you didn't know what you wanted to do kind of a thing. You just were like, just, just kind of like punching a card, like a time card, like you going to work and chomp, chomp, you know, you just, you check in, you check out. Like, I think it was more, um, I think it was, it was more violent i don't know why violent is the word that comes to mind punch in punch out makes it seem very um uh, passive mm -hmm. and 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 what it was was i think um i was a very insecure child i think if you if you know me now if you watch my videos you hear me on podcasts i suspect that i come across as pretty confident pretty selfish you know like you your parents take you to a, a grown-up dinner party and i would just hide if there even if there were other kids my age or just like hide behind my dad's leg you know like like literally hold on to my dad's leg as if it was a tree trunk um because I, that's how shy i was um i think too that there is a there was a cultural element at play i think that my family very much felt like outsiders um, and we were a kind of, uh, we were definitely acclimating in an American eye, in an American way, 
But at the same time, you know, my parents had only been in the States for six years when I was born. And so, you know, I very much as an Asian American, I wanted to feel American, which, by the way, in my mind back then, that meant feeling white. Uh, and I was this Cambodian kid with a weird name who was really shy and really skinny. So I think there was always this sense of like, I don't belong. Right. And it wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily, I mean, I was teased, but only like to the extent that kids tease one another, Sure. but I definitely didn't feel like I belonged in my own skin, in my friend group. I definitely didn't belong. Like, look, what do, what do teenage boys want? They want to date you know, their love interests. And I was very much didn't feel like anyone even paid attention to me in that context. And so from those insecurities, and I'm sure in hindsight now, you know, I'm sure my parents had a lot of insecurities about, you know, their stature in America, their financial insecurities, you know, being in New York in the 90s. So I think I might have been, I, I, I'm sure I internalized a lot of that. So, so I say that because I just, I felt very unsettled as a teenage as a teenager i did not feel confident i did not feel safe i did not feel loved I, i've been jumped mugged three times as a kid which is kind of common in new york city in the 90s like whether you're wealthy or not you just kids surround you and they take your money and they run away like that was, that was a very common occurrence in the 90s but you can imagine as a parent now i'm like what the fuck like i can't yeah. imagine my seven-year-old being surrounded by you know like three kids taking her backpack and running away that was pretty common and, and and i think i have some scars from that so to go back to your point to me the path out of that was money and power i was like i remember the time i got brought mugged the the scariest time surrounded by like seven kids with my younger sister in broad daylight and i got home like mom and dad i hate this place being new york city get us the fuck out of here i want to move right. to the suburbs i want to be driven everywhere i don't want these kids like lurking around corners stealing my backpack um and they're like sorry like this is just our reality and and i remember i'm just like i will the minute i can get out of this situation i will never i will never put myself in this situation again and i will never put anyone that i care about in this situation again and the only thing that i knew at that what i thought at that time was like my parents didn't have a lot of money and so what can I do to make a lot of money to make this kid feel safe first and foremost, then to feel confident and then to feel loved. And again, at that point, a proxy for love was like interest from the opposite sex in my case. So that's really, and so you could see I'm getting even animated saying that like that, there was a violence and an urgency to it where it was just like, there was this kind of element of like your survival, again, air quotes, right? Your, 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 survival through the lens of your teenage self are really at stake here. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. You and Matt Higgins, he's a shark from shark tank. Great, great guy, by the way, you both have very similar kind of backgrounds. They, you both wanted to get out of like a certain scenario in life. And you saw this, that this is your way out. You had to fight claw your way out of this situation and you're never going to let yourself go back there. So I think that's fascinating. That's, that's two people now, right? Same yeah. Same message. And it's like, you guys are both wildly successful. So that's really good to hear that. That is a way, I mean, there's a motivation right there for you as yeah. you know, a lot of people think money's the way out and it is right. Money allows you to live a certain lifestyle and then you have to figure out what, like what makes you happy. 
right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, like it's probably not the job, but the job was able to give you the money in order for you to get out and like move to Manhattan Beach or, you know, mm-hmm. go and find something that actually makes you happy. And it's like crazy rare to have that, right? Not many people in America have that runway to go and like, go and like test things. Like, what do I like? What do I want? You know, it's like first you need that runway, that success in order to go. Now let me go find what makes me happy. I guess you could say. Yeah. You know, can I, can I, um, yeah. can I interject there? Please. So I, I, and you know, I want to be careful to not, um, you know, maybe this is, this comes out not from you, but just, I get a version of this question often from a place of defensiveness, but, um, I, there, there is this question that often comes up when people hear my story and they're like, well, well, you are able to find what makes you happy because you have money. And since I don't have money, I'm not able to find what's happy. So like kind of easy for you to say, and I know you're, you're not saying, it, but I, I'm sure someone listening is thinking that sure. easy for you to say, rich guy. Um, and so one thing that, I, that, that I always, and I, I, I will not deny that like, Money buys a lot of opportunity. The biggest thing is it buys a lot of time. Money has bought me a lot of therapy, a lot of healing of that little boy that we've talked about. A lot of therapy, right? Like I've gone gone within. I built a business around going within. Um, but the, the, the funny thing is, um, so so I think about. I also do think though that you are the product of your habits. And so what I mean by that is, um, I love. I mean, we live in a town that is very much uh, a community that's very fitness obsessed, right? And I've always loved being fit, being healthy, being active. That's part of the reasons why I moved to Southern California. Um, so now that I own my free time and I have financial resources, I probably exercise two and a half to three hours a day. Um, so I'll surf for 90 minutes and then I'll usually go on an afternoon run, walk. I'll lift sometimes. I'll do uh, yoga. So I kind of have like a morning morning workouts, usually surfing. Afternoon workout is a mix of running, yoga and lifting. And, um, and so people will say, well, and then, you know, like I, I have a nutritionist that I speak to twice a year. I have a massage therapist that comes to my house once a month. So people are like, oh, like, of course you could do all that because you have all this money. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. When I worked a hundred hours a week on Wall Street, I also worked out 40 minutes a day, yeah. right? I would do push-ups in the office. I would bring my Same. running shoes to the, I would bring my running shoes to work. If there was a lull in the day, I would just go sprint. Sometimes I would run up and down the staircase, right? And so I fully acknowledge and honor that I have tremendous resources to live a healthy life, but I have always lived a healthy life before I had money and before I had free time. And it's just the money and the free time that expanded on the thing that I care about. And so I always tell people, and again, sometimes it can come across as being defensive. Maybe it is defensive, you know, that's for me to introspect on, but it's like, if you're waiting for more, you know, assuming, I assume that most of the listeners to this podcast have their basic needs covered, meaning they have a roof over their head and they, they're not worried about putting food on the table for themselves and their families. I suspect that this is the type of audience that at least clears <laughs> the bottom two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy. But if you're saying like, well, when I have more free time, then I will start exercising or then I will start taking care of my body. Then I will also t- start taking care of my mind, my spirit, whatever the thing is. I would say, you know, you don't just turn habits on with a change in life situation, right? Yeah. What yeah. a change in life situation often does is it accelerates the habit that already existed. 
the interest that already existed. So anyway, I wanted to stop there because it, it does come up often in conversations that I have, particularly with younger folks. Yeah, you know, that's valid. And I think, I actually think younger people have the opportunity to, especially if you're in college, like those are the, that's the time you can go and find something you actually like to do, right? That's like the lazy days. I mean, at least I treat it like the lazy days of school. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, you know, the, you know, the real world, I was like really excited to get into the real world and start like really making a living and like crushing it on the, the career front. And man, I missed school like probably four or five mm -hmm. years after I started. <laughs> I was like, you man, it's so easy. I do not have kids. Not yet. I'm not saying I won't have them. I do want yeah. them. <laughs> kids, kids adds a whole wrinkle to the, uh, to the time continuum. Yeah, it totally does. And you're right about like, again, working out and having really good habits. Like I started off just like making the habit of like a, being a person that showed up to work out. Right. And then I rolled into, Hey, now that I'm a person that works out and I have this like habit built now, I actually have to do the working out. I showed up right now I have to work out. And eventually that, that layering of like working out became bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And now I work out every single day. Right. And uh, just like what you were just saying, like you got to have these habits built in first. And it's like one of the things I feel like I can control in my life is working out. Right. I it, find that inner peace of like, Hey, if I'm stressed out or I'm, or I'm thinking about overthinking, getting caught in my head because I obsess over things. It's part of like a superpower and a, not a, not a very good gift as well where you obsess over things and it just keeps going. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to do like, you know, 60 pushups real quick and let's see how I feel afterwards or whatever the case is. And that has been like a huge life changer for me. Yeah. I have not always been healthy. Yeah. Like yeah. I, it's easy to default and zone out on a Netflix series or a movie or I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. So I can't say drugs, but it was easy to go grab a cocktail, right? Go have some yeah. drinks with friends you know, it'll distract me from what I know I need to do or I yep. want to do really, which is make basically what I need to do. But I, I used the alcohol, right? I was just like, Hey, I'm going to go drink with my friends and you know, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And then you're hung over the next day. And then you're like, okay, I'll just do it the next day then. And then you eventually just get to a point. And I think a lot of people in life do this. They zone out, they use TV and movies and food and mm -hmm. drugs and booze, everything to like TikTok. Put, yeah, put off everything you need to do in life. You know you need to do something, mm -hmm. but you just added five tasks that you have to do like around the house. Yeah, and it's like yeah. I know, I know, probably ninety nine out of a hundred people do that, and there's like yeah. maybe one or two that are like, "No, I got to get this done," and they get it done. So I think yeah. that's there's a great quote on that. Uh, Nir Eyal, he wrote the book Hooked. Uh, he says, book. Uh, "Attention, yeah, uh, attention management is pain management." And so in, in those cases, when you're, when one is grabbing a cocktail, because there's a reality that they don't want to face in the moment, or they're watching pornography or YouTube or smoking a joint, whatever the, whatever that burst of dopamine scrolling TikTok, attention management. So, so you've lost control of your attention is pain yeah. management. So you've lost control of your pain, not necessarily in the like, oh, I have a boo-boo on my arm pain but like a deeper pain of the, of the soul of like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm, you know, I'm an imposter, whatever the, 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 the story is, the internal story is. You know, that's, a that's, I love that you went there with this because it's, it's literally, uh, you know, the, there's a couple of quotes that, uh, that, that basically speak to this, which is one of them is like the, the longer you take to deal with reality, which is that, you know, mental pain, 
the mm-hmm. more expensive it is, right? Ooh, so I've never heard that one, but yeah. When you're 30, things might be easier, but when you're 40 and you got kids, it's not easier, right? It's mm-hmm. it's more expensive to actually start doing those things that you want yeah. to do when you're 30 or 35, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So. The comedian Whitney Cummings, I think it's Whitney Cummings, she has a quote on that. It's like, if you're not willing to really examine your more challenging feelings. And I think she's speaking specifically about men in this. She mm-hmm. says it's like holding in a fart. Like you can you can hold it in, but it just builds up and it builds up. And at some point it just ravages everyone around you, right? Like you just like, <laughs> you have to let it go. So, uh, so, so stop holding in the farts, let them out. <laughs> That's exactly right. I, uh, I'm glad you read Nier's book too. I love Hooked and I love Indistractable, both amazing yeah. books. Really smart guy too. I, I want to get him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's definitely cool. Um, man, you have such a an interesting history. So tell me more about, people are going to want to know like, hey, how did you go from Yale to like BlackRock? And I've looked at your background. I saw how you mm-hmm. do it, but people are going to want to know like, how did you give up like being like a managing director at BlackRock to, mm-hmm. and making millions to, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? I'm just going to not do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so- you so the thought process bet- behind walking away from like a re- like being a made man is that is that the question? Um, yes. <laughs> so I think that I feel so lucky uh, that I had so much success early in my life, and what it taught me was I, I, I give an a- analogy is like um, the first time you. Uh, get stoned. You you haven't gotten stoned, but the first time you get stoned, you could take like one drag of marijuana. You know, I was 18 years old, and um, the buildings turned into like monsters, right? Like one drag of marijuana. Uh, I'm not a huge smoker. I'll smoke from time to time. Yeah, I will never be able to ingest enough marijuana to ever have buildings turn into monsters again. It's just like, I have built too much of a, of an immune uh, tolerance. To sure. It. Sure. So why do I talk about weed and monsters? Um, when it comes to leaving BlackRock, what I, what happened to me was I built a tolerance to success. So, Here's the example. And again, I'm not saying this to elicit any sympathy points from, from anyone, but what happened is think about, so my first bonus, when I joined the first investment bank, they gave me a $7,000 signing bonus. I was 21 years old. That's the most amount of money I'd ever seen in one time enter my bank account. I thought I was a king. The feeling was like, a feeling was like, like I could buy any $70 purchase I want times like 18, like <laughs> it was the greatest feeling ever. You might have had that first feeling when your parents gave you that beat up car at 16, the greatest thing ever. I tell you that my bonuses went from seven to a hundred thousand to 500,000 to a million to 2 million. They never felt as good as that $7,000 bonus a hand oh. on my heart, right? Because you have to think about the, um, the tolerance that you've built to them, right? And yeah. so what happened was that I was getting this success in like quite a condensed period, both financially, but of equal importance, maybe even more per title wise. I was like, like really ascending the corporate ladder at the same time. And every time something hit, I would get a spike in happiness. Like, yes, I got this huge bonus. I would take my girlfriend or my wife 
we go to have like a nice dinner. I would buy a nice pair of sneakers, nice pair of jeans. I never even bought a nice watch. I don't really like stuff that much. I like spending on like, like surfing and experiences. Yeah, yeah. Experiences. I go buy something and then three days later, I would forget that that thing happened. Three days. And then what happened was I'd be like, oh, well, when's the next one, right? I'd be like, oh, the next one's in 362 days from now. So like work, 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 anticipate the next one. And like, it was bigger, but it felt even, even though it was bigger, more money, it felt less good than the prior one. I'm like, so it's in this weird way, there's this dissatisfaction because it's not that you want to replicate the amount of money. I was surpassing the amount of money. You want to replicate the feeling right? You want to replicate that feeling of like giving a, a 21 year old $7,000. You want to replicate that feeling is the greatest high ever. So you never can get that feeling back again, because guess what? You're like, it's the first, right? Like you'll never get that same feeling, but you, you want it so badly. And so you, so you have to keep working harder and harder just to maintain the feeling that you get when you get a bonus, when you get a promotion, working hard and hard, hard, but it's it's more disappointing, even though the the quantity is increasing with time. By the way, guess what that is a pattern of? It's a pattern of addiction. I never thought of it like that. That's really wow. Yeah. That's the behavior of an addict. Yeah. Wow. I used to get drunk off of one beer and now I need 10. And by the way, being drunk when I need 10 beers is no, not nearly as fun as being drunk when I had one beer. That's the behavior of an, of an addict. And in that case, um, and I have had issues with alcohol that I'm happy to talk about if, if you want. Um, but that I got to see that. And I don't know where it came from, but from some act of grace, some act of God, at some point, my brain said, okay, do you see what's happening here? You're making more money, but your level of satisfaction is getting lower and lower and lower. You could say maybe there's the diminishing returns of money. That could be one thing, the diminishing returns of status. Maybe it's just boredom. Right. And again, I know I'm not going to elicit any sympathy points here, but like when you get paid, when you keep going, like it, it kind of become that high becomes boring again, maybe like the pattern of an of addiction. And so some light bulb came up in me. It was like, okay, maybe this is around like maybe 32. So maybe three years before I quit. Like, okay. Have you ever considered that you're playing the wrong game? Right. Cause staying on the game just meant bigger. I mean, at some point they would plateau. I probably was kind of at that point, bigger, you know, more bonuses, more, you know, like, dude, the, the, the amount of cool shit that happens to you when you're an MD, you know, like I've skied private mountains. Like if I was still at BlackRock now, I could ski Kelly, Kelly Slater's private wave. I've had friends that have skied his private wave at the wave park, right? That's $15,000 for a day to surf there. I, I can't afford that. Um, I've skied on a private mountain in at the Yellowstone club in Montana, right? The amount of stuff that you get. And, but again, that all fell under the same umbrella, stuff, money, status. It's just like, it started to lose its, its punchiness. 
to it. And so I was just like, wow, maybe, maybe this path is not what I thought I wanted, or maybe, maybe said differently, maybe I've maximized this path and it's time to discover a new path. There was a few other things that were happening at the time. I think that one was, um, I looked ahead. So I was 35, 34 at the time. Uh, and I looked at someone that was 45 and they had kids who were, you know, teenagers and I just saw their lives and I'm like, what? you have a really nice life. You have multiple houses. You drive two X5s. Um, you know, it would be Teslas today uh, or Range Rovers. Um, <laughs> you know, your, your, your kids go to the fanciest summer camps and your vacations are, you know, primo. And I just kind of looked at that and I was like, that's a really nice life. That's not that interesting to me. And so what was the first thing I did when I quit? I took my 18-month-old and my wife. We hopped on a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia. That's, nice. that's wealth to me, is backpacking with an 18-month-old. Not backpacking, but, um, <laughs> you know, airbnb it, like kind of one-way ticketing it with an 18-month-old, which, again, I say this because a lot of people, are, like when we did that, they're like, you're nuts. You can't take an 18-month-old with a one-way ticket. What are you going to do about car seats in Indonesia? And I was just like, watch us. <laughs> right. And so I do feel really blessed that some wiring in me, maybe that's what led me to entrepreneurship was just like, if someone tells me that that's the only way to do something, it makes me more inclined to, to, to challenge that way of doing things. And I, I don't know where that came from because my parents are immigrants like they're like the most conforming like my dad still wears a collared shirt when he even though he's an american he has a green card he still wears a collared shirt when he goes through u.s customs because he's like scared of customs so like my parents are the most rigid like like you know we follow the the, the process to to the to a t and then they've got this son that like every eight years like yolos it <laughs> i love that you said that about entrepreneurship too like that was a I feel the same way that you do, or, you know, people told me, no, like said a lot of times said, no, you can't do that. You're, you don't have enough, a big enough degree. No, you can't do that. You don't have, you know, you don't have enough experience. So I literally fought my way through that stuff. Like that was a chip on my shoulder. People tell me now nah, I can't, sorry. It's always been done this way. Kind of a scenario I was like, okay, well that's where I come in and I'm going to mess that all up because mm -hmm. I'm finding a new way to do this because the way we do things here is not the right way. As far as yeah. I'm concerned. So yeah. I feel the same. And here's way. the thing too about entrepreneurship. Like now that I've been an entrepreneur for for eight, eight years, nine years, even an entrepreneur for for longer, I believe, is that you have to have a, a screw loose to be an entrepreneur. Yes. Because it actually doesn't make rational sense to be an entrepreneur. And I can give a hundred reasons why it doesn't make a natural sense. The, the biggest one is that if you adjust for probabilities of success, you're going to make way more money being successful in corporate America, way more. If you adjust for, but that's the thing is like an entrepreneur doesn't look at a, a distribution of outcomes and be like, I'm the middle of that distribution. They're like, no, I am an outlier yeah. in that distribution. Sometimes they're wrong. Most of the times they're wrong, again, statistically, because there's a reason why the distribution is the distribution. So do you, do you think that's really true, though? So here's, here's the reason why I asked that question. Yeah. Because I really think that the stats are 
more of like an average rather than a median and like and okay. then putting people into like groups of like hey have you done this before so the way i look at it is i've done a lot of and yeah i've worked at lots of startups right and mm-hmm. three of them that went you know sold for over a, you know 480 million or more and all those what those companies taught me which then allowed me to start my own stuff was it showed you what good looks like right a lot of people don't know what good looks like and a lot of entrepreneurs and i know like 10 in the last 10 years, probably maybe nine years that just jumped in without knowing anything, having zero background, zero experience. And of course they failed, right? They had no experience doing anything. Like they literally graduated college and go, I'm going to start a business. I'm like, you Mm -hmm. don't know what you're doing. If you want, I can help you like at least, you know, get from zero to one. And then you guys are, then you guys can go and do it. Right. To me, it feels like the people I was in I guess you could say, you know, there's obviously the eBay mafia or the PayPal mafia, Mm -hmm. right? Well, we had lowermybills.com mafia where like all of us were like crazy overachievers, right? Mm -hmm. The people that came out of lower my bills, like I would say eight or nine out of 10 of those people that tried to do something are wildly successful. Like CMO of match.com. And I've done some pretty cool things, not nearly as, you know, cool as like you or, you know, where you jet after, you know, doing $4 million and like yeah. figuring out your way. Like I'm doing that right now, but like, there's so many people like, like right now I could launch a company. This is just me just talking here. I yeah. could launch a company right now and probably make it profitable in like two to three months maximum. Yeah. I think it's, I think you raised a lot of good points. So, so the statistics, I don't know whether there's like survivorship bias and selection sure. bias and means and medians and all that. Um, I do think though that um, just being an entrepreneur and is hard. Like I'll use myself as an example. I've been an entrepreneur for nine years and granted I've picked a very unique flavor of entrepreneurship. That's not really focused on like maximizing um, profits. It's really built on maximizing lifestyle, right? Like surfing and doing all that stuff. Um, (laughs) But like I've had my two best years as an entrepreneur have been 250,000 in profits, which is good for self-funded. But in no means, I think I'm a very, if you think of entrepreneurship, the whole package of the lifestyle and, and all of that, I think I'm a very successful entrepreneur. If you think of entrepreneurship in terms of like uh, revenue or, or profitability, I think I'm very average, maybe like below average. So just there's, there's like a lot of different flavors of measuring success. I think though, the, to me, the thing about entrepreneurship that, that I think is the real superpower whether you're successful or not, is it teaches you, you know, there's a difference between being resource, between having resources and being resourceful. I think there's something about being an entrepreneur. And I've seen this in, in, again, this is like uh, uh, empirical based on my sample set. But the thing about entrepreneurs, even the ones that are, are not necessarily successful by entrepreneurial metrics, like they have an exit or, you know, so on, but they just know they have this confidence that they just know how to make money. They just know. And they can go be the CMO of Match. They can go be a, a consultant. They can go sit on a board. They can start a VC-backed company. They can be an internet creator. But they just know that like, it's it's completely within the, in them to make money. And I think that is why, to me, that is like, that's why you look at entrepreneurs. You're like, why is like, why is this person not scared? It's because they're not scared because they know even if this thing screws up, they can just go, 
they have all like their, their, their range as a professional has expanded beyond comprehension. And I think entrepreneurs secret, they like, they quietly know that it's like a quiet confidence that it's very hard for someone who's never been an entrepreneur to AC and then B appreciate. Right. And did, weren't you like an entrepreneur, like at a young, really young, you were saying you were at a really young age, you were trading cards, right? By low yeah. sell money, right? Yeah. Yeah. You were doing I've always had that. Money. I've always had that, like that knack. I have always known how to make money like right? since yep. I was a young, young kid. So I guess that, you know, again, there's different categories of entrepreneur, but absolutely hundred percent. I actually started there too. I did a, I was selling like gum in school, which sounds really lame, but uh, no. buy low at 25 cents a pack, sell high at a dollar a pack. So I was 400% my profit every time at 11. Exactly. Like, Got to do it, right? So whatever yep. it takes. And uh, you know, it's funny. I definitely agree with you about entrepreneurship. Like and once you do it, and I really, and I 100% agree with the resourcefulness versus resources, right? Because right now, like when you do a scrappy startup, because I've self-funded basically everything I've done, mm -hmm. um, raised later, but most of the time, like 99% of the time, raised none. And just, yeah. you know, solo, solo businesses or ad tech companies or whatever it is, like I just, we just, you know, we make it work, right? I, when people say like, oh, I run a nonprofit, I'm like, what's a nonprofit? Because I always make mm -hmm. the companies I work, I run like profitable. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you, that you feel the same, a little bit in the same way where it's, it's actually, you know, people are probably, I mean, that's what schools are for, right? Schools are for to churn out workers, yeah. not mm -hmm. made to churn out entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. And you look, I mean, you know this well, like the thing, especially if you're running a business that has a digital component. And at this point, every business has a digital component. You can't write the textbooks fast enough. It's for the things tomorrow. That you need to learn. Yeah, yeah, it's literally obsolete tomorrow. So forget the if you can't write the textbook, how are you going to teach the, the university course? So true. And you know what I noticed? I, I was uh definitely guest lecturing at a, a couple of schools here in LA, or mm -hmm. sorry, in the LA area. And it seemed like a lot of the the professors didn't really have the experience. Like they were like, you know, 15 years ago, they were doing the thing that they're teaching. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's technology stuff you're talking about, like ads, especially display ads and and just, you know, Google ads, things like that. And they just didn't know the new techniques. Can I tell you a really quick, funny yeah, story on this? Please, Remember the, the TikTok hearings in Congress? Of course. Of course. It was and awesome. so, so there was, remember there was, because you teach, you're like the professor doesn't really know the thing that they're teaching. There was like a, a senator or a congressman or, that says, so when I log on to the TikTok, <laughs> it asks me for the Wi-Fi. <laughs> is China stealing my Wi-Fi? You're like, I remember what that. the fuck? I remember like, that. So the well. TikTok asks me for the Wi-Fi. Like you're making, and again, I don't have a horse in the TikTok race. I, 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 Neither I do have I. an opinion, <laughs> but I'm like, geez, if this is the starting point, we are in trouble. Right. That That's scary. I, I watched all of the hearings. Right. Yeah. And when they ask like, oh, how do I log in? How do I keep, how do I log into Twitter through TikTok? It's like, what you can't, what are you talking about? Like the Google CEO is like basically feeding him like answers. Like, Hey, what do I do on Facebook? He's like, I work for Google. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know about Facebook. Like what are you talking about? Like, how do you not have, sorry, on another little bit of a rant, how does, how do you not have people smart enough to give you details or at least answer the, or ask the right questions? Like ask yeah. these questions that if they say this, say that, right? Yeah. Decision tree. I don't know. It seems basic to me, but you know, it just didn't work out that way. 
They shouldn't ad lib. Those guys should <laughs> ad lib. If they don't know the technology, just don't ad lib because this makes you right. So, question to you: yeah. Where would you? So, let's just say someone's in the corporate world right now, yeah. and they're like, "Hey," or they just lost their job because a lot of people are losing their jobs. That's that whole silent recession thing that's going on. What would what would you say to the CMO of Match, right, or the whatever whatever organization it is? Like, what do you what would you say to an executive that's like climbing the corporate ladder? starts to realize their life kind of is not going in the right direction. And they're like, you know, maybe they have like, they don't have millions in the bank, but they have mm -hmm. like, you know, let's say two, $300,000 in the bank, right? Yep. What would you tell them to do first? And they just lost their job, right? Their entire mm. world was rocked. They're like, yeah. oh, okay, I got like three months severance. And yeah. yeah, I got some money in the bank. I'm not super rich, but I'm not broke. I can survive yeah. probably the next two or three years without having to really be concerned. Yeah. Um, but I'd be blazing through. I'd have a burn rate, right? My yeah. burn rate yeah. would be sinking me and I don't really have an income. What do we, yeah. what do I do next to be a creator starting today? Mm. And so, oh God, it's so the, so the question is to be a creator, not to necessarily bridge. You know, entrepreneur, creator, whatever day. it is, because yeah. in my mind, like I, the way I think of like being a creator now is it's mm -hmm. like, if you don't have content out there, you don't exist. In three okay. years, if you're not a creator and you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, you're screwed if you don't have a personal brand and you're not out there yeah. marketing and people don't know you. I think yeah. it's the new SEO as far as I'm concerned. So, so I, ha I have two, uh, like I, I have a one-on-one -on -one coaching business and I have two clients where we're quietly building their personal brand. Nice. Not, in a, not in a way that is like, you, you know, it's not like, making dancing TikToks, but it's like quiet. Like how do you quietly build authority amongst the people that matter to you? Right. Okay. So if, uh, so I'm a, I, I want to become a creator. Everyone's a creator. I uh, have some time. I have some runway, but I don't have infinite runway. Correct. What would I do? Um, yep. that's a really it's tough, right? It's a tough it's question. A, it's, it's, it's a tough question. It's a real because, world question because I yeah. know someone going through this right now. They're like, yeah. I know I need to build my personal brand because my next job, if I take one, will yeah. be X. But if I don't take a job, I also want to know that my creator income could yeah. not only support me, but also can make it so I can go from surviving to mm -hmm. thriving. Right? Yeah. I think that the first question that I would ask is and you you answered this but so people running through the exercise in their head can can do it is like how much runway are you willing to give yourself so when i left blackrock i put aside four hundred thousand bucks and i was which is you know 200 two year two year runway yeah. two year runway and it's like if we lit a match to this money it doesn't impact our retirement goals our kids college and so on and again very fortunate position that many people are not, aren't, aren't, don't have access to. But again, you could also be 20, well, the CMO of Match is not going to be 22 years old, but you could have different burn rates, family of four, single person, 22-year-old, 44-year-old, chronic health, no chronic health, whatever. Sure. So figure out what your horizon is. And that means to have a very clear understanding of what your burn is. And the reality is that people don't have so this is we're not even in creator mode yet people don't know what their burn is and the reason That's they don't crazy, they always <laughs> um there's always a uh well this year was an anomaly right i this year we redid the pool and like okay so what was it if you extract the pool like oh well we also took like 
uh, an extra vacation. Uh, what was it then? What was it like? Oh, last year was like COVID rebound year, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, what's your fucking burn? Like, no, like have some sense of it within 30, 40, 50%, right? So have your burn. And I would probably say like, whatever someone thinks their burn is, it's usually like 50% higher, right? It's just, there's all that stuff you pay in cash that you like, you know, like, oh yeah, I forgot that I pay, you know, my nanny in cash. Like, oh, it's, that's 50 grand right there, right? Um, 40 grand, whatever a nanny costs. Um, so figure out your burn and then figure out your burn juxtaposed against how much, like be honest with yourself. Like in this example, you know, you're, the person has 300K and they're like, I am not willing to go below 200K. Right. Right. Guess what? If there burns 150,000, like you have three quarters, my math's off, but you have three quarters of a year to figure it out. So that would be the first thing is like, really be honest of what, what horizon you're playing with. Um, because it's going to come up with you quickly. The reason why I asked the horizon question is that the creator, if you want to make money purely as a creator, that is a long game, right? Like it took me eight years to get to 250,000 in, in profits. Um, and I worked pretty hard at, I'm a, I didn't work hard, but I'm a very diligent creator. Like I give you some metrics. Like I have written a weekly newsletter for 415 consecutive weeks. I've written a weekly blog post for 350 consecutive weeks. I've done a hundred podcast episodes. I've posted daily on Twitter for two straight years, like high volume. And by creator standards, I'm not particularly, I'm fine, but I'm like very much in the creator average, so to speak, like from a revenue, from an income perspective. Sure. So the creator game is going to be a long game. And so there's another game and they can overlap, but they're not always the same game is I want to become a creator to create more op career opportunities for me, which is a very different game that like, I want to have a million YouTube subscribers and then sell an online course or sell digital products or whatever that is. They're two, they're almost like, they're almost, you can't even put them in the same category. That's how different they are. Right. And, and so for example, like, let's say, and, and this is something we do with like our personal branding clients. It's like, we come up with a list and like, who are the people that we want to pay attention to me? And so the CMO of Match might want all CMOs of Fortune 500 companies to pay attention to them. So then the question becomes, how do I get myself and my work in front of those other 500 CMOs, right? And that's where there's like a million different pathways start to emerge. You could do like a super tactical podcast, right? It's like the CMO podcast, right? I will never listen to a podcast called the CMO podcast, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Right. But the CMO podcast, you might only have 150 listeners, but they are the right people. And every single week you show up in their feed you add value, you, you introduce them to, to unique perspectives, you teach them something new. And then they're like, oh, like, oh yeah. Um, turns out Hinge is looking for a new CMO. Like, yeah, that, that, that like CMO podcast gal, let me see what, what they're up to, right? Yeah. So I think that that's why I almost like separate them into 
to two things. So one is like, do I want to build a business around my identity? And that's a long game. And I'm probably not even the right, if you want to do it quickly, I'm probably not even the right person to talk to. Cause I just, I, I haven't done it. I'm not trying to play that game. Sure. Um, and, and so, so that, that's one, one path. I could tell you the really slow way of doing it that way. And then the other one is like, I need to get in front of the right people. It could be for like investment opportunities and so on. So then from there, you can start to see like, who do I want to pay attention to me? And how do I get in front of them? Maybe you are, you have like this niche knowledge of how to, how to implement uh, agile in a um, um, health tech company. Right. Very niche thing. Pretty big audience. There's a lot of healthcare companies, Agile. And then you might say, like, it turns out that, like, every time I Googled how to do Agile in healthcare, nothing showed up. So maybe your entryway into there is through search engines. Right. And you're like, what are the 50 articles that I wish I had been able to read when I was trying to implement Agile in healthcare? And let me just write them. Right. Or let me pay, let me pay a writer to do them. And then in the bottom, it's like, you know, it's Lucas's blog, it's Kay's blog. Like, oh, like every, it's funny. Every time I, I like want to look up healthcare and agile, like this Lucas person comes up, let me go follow them on LinkedIn. Oh, it turns out they send a newsletter too, like a healthcare and agile newsletter. Right. Um, and so that, I think that if you want to do it to, to, to get opportunities, it's a very different game. Right. Then if you want to be like Logan Paul and you want to sell prime sports drink to hundreds of millions of 14 year old boys, like then it's like be on every channel that a 14 year old boy could ever see you on. Right. right? Or yep. Kylie Jenner selling makeup to, you know, women or girls or teenagers or what have you. So I think they're two very different paths and obviously one can inform the other. But if you're going down the like targeted, these are the people, you're going to be wasting a lot of time posting affirmations on, on Instagram. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yep. And, and vice versa, if you want to be a Logan Paul and you're hosting the CMO podcast, you're never going to hit the breadth of market that you need for prime your drink, sports drink to survive. So I think that's like a really important distinction. And even within each of those kind of, categorizations they're different there's tons of different gradations yeah i 100 percent agree i like the way you broke that down the way i think about it is a little bit different but uh you know i, I think you can do both but more like 80 20 rule right you can do mm. you know 80 percent of the your content goes to whatever your your main focus is and that yeah. like 20 percent goes to the nice to have focus right if you're looking yeah. for a new job and to reach like cmos then 80 percent goes towards that and the other 20 yeah. percent goes towards like whatever you're trying to do as a creator. And, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe one of these things takes off in the, in the meantime, but I think that personal brand that you're building should be like top of mind moving forward, like forever. Like you should be yeah. building that equity, that person's, you know, your name's equity forever, right? I, I, I agree. And I would add the challenge there is that it's brutally competitive. Yeah brutally. So even that 20% that's like the whatever, like it might not be seen for like two years. Right. Right. 
So you really, which is why the horizon matters. Mm -hmm. Really got to have the stamp right, dude. I spent, so this is a perfect example. I have very little presence on YouTube and I want to just learn the medium. I think YouTube video is just, it's the, I think it's, it's already huge. I think it's, we've just scratched the surface. Same. How way. It's gonna be. I feel the same way as you do about that. Yeah. And Gen X is like us. We just have a very awkward relationship to video. We don't love, we definitely don't like being on video. Yeah. We're not only, we're, we're not even, not only are we not part of the YouTube generation and like, we're like barely part of the Netflix generation, you know, like, <laughs> like we still haven't cut, a lot of us still haven't cut the cord yet. Right. And everyone else is watching, you know, uh, geopolitical conflict erupt on TikTok, And we're just like Dan rather and the nightly news, you know? Um, so, so anyway, so I go and make, I'm, I, I'm trying to make a YouTube video a week and YouTube is not, it is very time consuming. And so I just, I, I spent so much energy into this one video. I probably spent you know, four hours scripting it, two hours recording it, two hours editing it. Uh, so maybe eight hours total. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the first like day is a good marker of how it's going to do. It got 28 views. That's a lot. Hey, you know what? You, you pumped out a video. That's a big deal. And you hit publish. Like so, that's a big step, man. <laughs> so I feel I'm very proud and I feel very proud of the work product. Like it's a good video, but man 28 and like you know half of those are probably bots so like when you like they like look at the minutes watch it's like less people less time has been spent watching my video than went into creating my video which is again with this is where the endurance thing comes up is like i know that if i could do that for a year i will find some version of success on youtube completely but that's 416 hours of my time and that, that's not the hard part. The hard part is 416 hours of your time with very little validation from the public. Right. Like very few people. It takes nerves and emotional fortitude of steel to be able to say, I'm going to invest 400 hours of time into something where I will get close to zero validation. Yeah. I mean, valid. Have you thought about um, possibly, I mean, I don't know what you do for research for your mm -hmm. videos, but- if you, uh, there might be a shortcut for you, um, start making content in a category people are already searching for. Yeah. Yeah. It will, it'll cut your, um, validation loop down by like yeah. 80 to 90%. And then what you could do is you could take that topic and then adjust it for what you want to actually talk about. It could be your topic, yeah. whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you have all this search volume going through and then, you know, you have your message. So that's a yeah. faster way. Possibly. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm playing with a lot of things because I think that's the cool thing of doing something uh, for a, like weekly. Sure. I'm very good at doing something weekly for a year. Like yeah. I'll like let it run even with very little validation. And so that's the good thing about doing something weekly for a year is that every iteration you like try to make one tweak and you're like, ah, oh, like here, like the framing wasn't good or here we didn't hit a search term or here we could, we could use some better editing or here. And then you do that 52 times, you've made 52 tweaks. You probably have discarded 80% of the tweaks, but 20% of the tweaks are powerful as hell. Yeah, a hundred percent. Are you going to continue to edit your own videos? Or are you going to like have someone edit for you or? No, I'm, I, I'm, I'm seeing how it goes. Like I, I, to me, this is why I do things really slowly is like, 
I really want to understand the ins and outs of a medium. To me, like, I don't think I could communicate well with an editor until I, I at least understood the language of an editor. Right? Like, I don't know how to talk to an editor if I don't, if I can't explain the difference between a cut, a layer, you know, like, so true. Um, so true. B-roll. Like, I didn't know what B-roll was until a couple of years ago, right? How would, how the hell would I have a conversation with an editor if I don't know what B-roll is? For those of you who don't know B-roll, it's like the background images when someone's talking, like a drone shot or something like that. So, so I, I but my, my whole thing is like, I play the super duper long game. Like, I want to play 10-year games, 20-year games. And so I have to do things that, align with like who I am that are aligned with my values that, that basically it's going to sound, it might sound indulgent. It's like that make me happy. No, right. And obviously, and, and so um, I look to play those long games and then, um, and then it, it, you know, like my growth is much longer, but I'm like, there's a lot of creators that flame out after year five and like, here I am approaching year nine. And by the way, I have, I have two grown, you know, mid aged kids you know, I have shit going on in my life and, and all that. So my, my game is like, I want to do this. I want to do a version of what I'm doing till I'm 70. That's and, awesome. uh, and so I need to be crystal clear on like what I thrive on, what my purpose is, what my mission is, what like I need to tune out the noise. I need to do things. I need to get my reps in. So I'm always trying to figure out what's the right um, mix of that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that you said that you need to understand it all because again, very much like me, I can't like tell people what to do yep. unless I know what to do. Right. Yep. And the only way to know what to do is to actually do it yourself for a while. Mm -hmm. Like you, uh, you kind of have to become an expert, at least mm -hmm. a novice expert in, yep. something in order to actually teach people or tell people what to do. Cause otherwise you don't know what they're saying to you. Right. Yeah. So what you said was like spot on, uh, like literally my met, my mental model for learning anything is always me learning first. And now I can teach it. Once I can teach it, I can then tell people what to do underneath me, like as employees or whatever it is. Right. So a hundred percent accurate. Um, that's amazing. That's a really good take on things, man. I can't believe, uh, it's a lot of stuff in common here, my man. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so you surf now. Did you, did you know how to surf before you moved to Manhattan beach or did you learn when you got here? I was, um, I was a vacation. I, I, I grew up skateboarding, uh, yeah. and I'm a decent snowboarder. Um, but I've always been a vacation surfer. So I would take surf trips from New York city, um, where I lived most of my adult life. Um, we'd go to like Rincon, Puerto Rico, um, Costa Rica, um, mostly Puerto Rico and, and Costa Rica for, uh, from New York city, Dominican, Dominican Republic. Uh, and so I did that and I always had this, again, this is a little bit like the thing I was saying earlier with, you know, people who lift, uh, who people who like want to be fit. And like, I think what I, one thing I've observed, a lot of people move to Manhattan beach from the East coast and they're like, I'm going to become a surfer. And what happens is they buy all the gear, you know, they worked on wall street, buy all the gear, wetsuits, four boards, all that stuff. And then they go in like gung ho and they're like, wait a minute. This is really cold and really hard, really hard. <laughs> it's very dark. It's very lonely. Um, and this is the thing that people don't realize, like social media, um, surfing is not one of those sports that you can put on social media. Like 
True. You and you'd be amazed of like true surfers don't give a fuck. But a lot of surfer tourists, they're like, there's a part, might be 10%, it might be 30% that want to show to others that they're a surfer. Because surfing holds this like very cult, this cultural ideal in our society, as it should. It's it's you know, it's chill, but it's a rebel and it's technical and you're fit and you're tan. And like surfing really checks a lot of boxes of like kind of like an American, uh, an American um uh athletic story, so to speak, freedom story. Sure. Um, so anyway, um I so I got here and I'm like, I'm going to surf every day. And uh, I think that was the difference. I, I, I was a terrible surfer when I got here. Now I'm a less than terrible um, surfer. But, um, you know, when I moved here, I put a lot of pressure on myself to surf. And like, you know, I think someone like me, I'm an uh, achiever type. And I derive so much of my self-worth from like in my own eyes, from my own accomplishments. And so I just like, I just try to rack up as many accomplishments as I can, mostly for myself and then secondarily to humble brag. Um, but um, so I was like, I'm going to become like a, an amazing surfer. And so I would surf and paddle and, and go out every single day. And then I'm like, I had this moment where I love surfing, but I'm like, okay, hey, why are you putting so much pressure on yourself? Like who you like, I'm 44 years old. I started surfing in earnest as a 38 year old. I'm not even winning a 40 plus. I'm not even qualifying for a 40 plus comp competition, let alone placing in it. Yet I bring this kind of intensity, sometimes it borderlines on obsessiveness uh, to this thing that's supposed to be fun. Kelly Slater has this quote, when you ask him who's the best surfer, he, he says it's, he's the one having, it's the person having the most fun. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so I've had this kind of up and down relationship where I pinned a lot of my self-worth to becoming a good surfer. Then I kind of got like a little disillusioned by it. And then I kind of regained a healthier relationship with it. And then we've had this stretch. Um, I don't know if your friends in the area have told you, but we've had like no waves for six months. It's been horrible. Uh, so there's been a stretch of no surfing. So whether you're a surfer or you hate surfing, it doesn't really matter. There's just no surfing happening right now. Um, so, um, Long story short, that that's my story with surfing. Yeah, that's a good one. I, uh, I I've been surfing since I was ten. So like for me, when I moved out here, I was just like in heaven, of course. Oh yeah. And Porto was the best surf break in Los yeah. Angeles, easily. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's still really good. Our sandbars yeah. are a little screwed right now, but it's really good still. Yeah, down by uh, down by the Chevron station there, like that yep. was my, that was my jam. I used to live on Gull Street right there, so it was oh, such yeah. a sweet location just to walk and go down yep. there. Man, I miss it though. I haven't surfed in a number of years now. I should probably get back into it. Do it. Fun, man. I'm more of a longboarder. Like I definitely surf some small boards, like uh, some swallowtails and some fun boards and things like that. But nothing recently, my man. I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's, it definitely takes a lot out of you, right? And I had a yeah. crew of people here. Um, I would say from like 2006 to like 2010, mm -hmm. I, my friends came over every Saturday. We surfed every Saturday morning and then went to Sharky's. The old look, the old mm -hmm. spot. <laughs> yep. Well, Bloody Marys called it a day. It was just yeah. Plus surfing, man. It's so cool too to go with the right people. Yeah. Such yeah, a good. Yeah. Once you get up past the break and you look back at the houses, especially mm -hmm. at like dusk when the sun's going down and it's like yep. off all the windows. Like oh, oh, I love it. I love that part. I love surfing in, in the evening and uh, especially Manhattan Beach, just because there's also no bugs. Mm -hmm. Like on the East Coast, you would get eaten alive surfing yeah, on like, good point. stuff. Oh, 
brutal. Good point. Right? Um, so I, I, I'm going to read a couple of tweets from yours just because okay. I found a couple of them interesting because you're like, hey, man, I have this great work-life balance idea, right? This mentality mm -hmm. of like you're, you're optimizing for life experience, not as much as ROI in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And it says, I get triggered online often. It's usually by someone who's doing better than me. More followers, more engagement, more revenue. Uh, at night, I recall offer like basically a, like recall the offending tweet and then observe the feelings in my body. Then, funny enough, it just dissolves. Like, what do you mean by it? Like, it just dissolves. Like, you don't. So you still have this like competitive nature. Like, it's just inherent in you. Mm. Oh yeah, I how think you, that. You love it. Like, how do you tamper that? I have learned so my wall street career one thing we didn't spend much time talking about is my wall street career has been very much um it was a lot of numbing in that there was a lot of stuff that i was trying to process about you know life and life based the human condition sure and it like anytime something happened i would just like work harder grab a beer go party go work out like i didn't i didn't really ever go inwards right and i have parents who are very asian in that regards so like they never kind of you know that they're like therapy is a waste of time you know and so part of when i left finance was like i don't know myself and and so i've done a lot of different therapy modalities coaching modalities meditation like i've really worked on my inner like my 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 inner self and i've spent so many years working on my outer self and what I've learned from my inner self is like, I, I don't, I don't know where exactly it came from, but like, I have this deep sense of unworthiness and I don't know, like my parents are happily married and, you know, they treated us well and, you know, like no one like, you know, hurt us or verbally abused us or any of that stuff. But there's something in me that 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 feels unworthy of 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 others or unworthy of others love I, I don't know it's like a little bit hard like I, I couldn't even have named this like five years ago but now i've like this unworthiness and so this whole time i've built up this defense mechanism by just like gamifying my life and and just like well i could like i could go surf i could go lift i could go tweet and like basically i think what it is is like i've i've built a life that really kind of craves i i need validation from others and so i've created a career that really serves my need for validation more so even than my wall street career because like what better place to get validated than the internet right like you could just yeah. i could go write a tweet now and you know 10 people are going to validate me with a micro burst of validation with a heart or whatever so I don't know, you know, I, I've kind of explored where that, that unworthiness comes from. Again, it's a little bit hard to intellectualize, like, because again, nothing happened to me, but that is, you know, that is the human condition, you know? And I do think that a lot of people, uh, particularly achieving types have some kind of insecurity around their self-worth. And that's what drove them to be so successful. And guess what? It's it's very much like the comment I had made about the addictive behavior, right? Like you, you never reach a point where you're like, oh, you wake up, you're like, I feel worthy to everyone. And again, it's why you see billionaires who commit suicide. You see social media influencers 
with mental health issues. And it's also why you see people who have arguably nothing in a material sense be extremely content with their lives. That's the op other side of that coin, right? So that's something that I've struggled with for, you know, I didn't even know I had this struggle because I was so busy chasing. And then over the past eight, nine years, I started to have the language. I started to talk about it with people. And, um, and so I'm starting to kind of heal that side of me. But again, I think like at its core, I crave validation to prove my sense of worthiness to myself. And when I don't get it or I don't get it enough, and again, enough can be relative to someone else, then I feel less good of, about myself temporarily. But again, if we're the, if we were the, the products of our lived experience, like if I'm constantly getting triggered, there's always going to be someone with more money, more followers, who's better looking, who's richer, whose spouse is more attractive. Like there's always going to be. So if that, if you're not, if you live in, in yearning of having achieved that, you are always going to live in a per per perpetual state of dissatisfaction. And right. it's not to say that I'm in, I live in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction, but I guess that like at the end of the day, we just, we want to be at peace with ourselves. Right. And I, I'm getting closer. I'm definitely much more at peace than I was with myself a decade ago, for sure. But I'm not there. And maybe you're never there, right? Maybe, you know, that is the spiritual journey of life, right? I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And so it's like, you know, sometimes I, I, I'll ask myself, and like, I'll be triggered by someone more successful than me. And I'll, I'll ask myself, like, okay, do you accept yourself as you are right now? And it's like, ooh, you know, it's like, because in that moment, I don't because I'm like, I'd be a little bit better in my own eyes if I had a little bit more of what that person had. Right. Right. And yeah. I think that that's going to be my life long. I think it's the other side of my kind of coin of success wow. is that some portion of my success is motivated by an unhealthy fear of unworthiness. And so I think I'm going to get to this interesting place in my life where I'll have to question, really question success, not even because I've questioned monetary success. And I'm like, I've kind of moved beyond the games of monetary success. If I hadn't, I would have just stayed on Wall Street. But I'm going to, I think the next journey for me is to move beyond the games of kind of validation success or, or like internet fame or internet clout and just like be okay with being a nobody to others, but a somebody in my own eyes. Right. That's a tough one. That, that is a tough a, one. That's freedom though. It is. That's it's when you know you're free. That's what I aspire. At. Maybe I'll never get there in my life. Yeah. But, but to me, I know that that is freedom. And I know that it is possible for me, but I know that I'm going to keep having to rip off more and more layers of myself and get into that rawness of who I really am. That's a really interesting take that you're willing to go down that road and you want to, you actually want to be that person. And I think this also gives me a little bit more insight as in like, I think you're right. These we're, we're all kind of deeply flawed because I, I'm always looking for validation of ideas. Like my jobs have been focused on validating an idea that works for a conversion rate. Right. And then all of a sudden you double, triple, quadruple down on that. It works. There you go. We just validated the, you know, the uh, onboarding process or the consumer yeah. experience, whatever it is, right? That same thing plays out in my life as well. It's like, what am I looking for and doing, right? Mm -hmm. We, I feel like you were right 100% on the people that are 
at least trying to high achieve are always constantly on a hamster wheel of validation. What? But that goes back to the thing we were saying earlier. It was like, yeah. imagine you, you talk at all the, um, the best colleges in the country about whatever topic you care about. Sure. I don't think you'll be at peace. I, I definitely, I've already been there. So I know I'm not at yeah. peace. <laughs> so, so, so then know. what, what next? Exactly. What uh, a beautiful question. It is. It's such a it's tough a beautiful one. question. When I was 28, I thought exactly what you're saying, what you were thinking, except for mine was a number. I was so yep. silly. Like I was like, it'll it never, will never stop until you address the pain that comes from a need. Yep. There's I an unmet need of yours. Yeah. And I'm not going to be the one to tell you what it is because I have no, no idea what of course it is. Not. Yeah, yeah. But there's no, an unmet no. need of yours. Yep. That believes that it will be um, tended to through validation. Right. But there's also a part of you that knows in your heart of hearts that no validate, no amount of validation will ever heal, fulfill that unmet need. 100%. Because you've, you've, you've experienced it already. Yep. And I really want people listening to pay attention to that. It's like, it doesn't matter. This is why Stephen Schwartzman, I suspect, who's worth $100 billion and is 85 years old, still works 100 hours. Like, do you think it's because he loves what he does? Maybe he likes it a lot. But I suspect, again, I've never met Mr. Schwartzman, but I suspect that there is some unmet need that he he is clinging to to be fulfilled by his work, by his status and, and rank. Dude, the guy has a fucking building named after him at Yale. Like, um, it doesn't get doesn't get better than that in, in Western society, right? So true. Um, so, so I truly, I, I, I believe a wonderful, have you ever heard of or read the book called Radical Acceptance? I have not. I have not. Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. She's an incredible spiritual teacher. She, the entire book is about what we just discussed. I love it. I'm writing it down. I read a, I read like a book a week. So uh, I love that. I needed, I need more books. <laughs> Can't get enough of them, my man. Can't get yeah. enough. So let's go through a couple more here, man. You, you have uh, really good insights. Um, I'm glad you live in Manhattan beach. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing back to this topic, because yep. Mr. Beast, I I've, I've literally watched a ton of his content Mm-hmm. And it's not not just his videos. Mostly, I watched his interviews because yeah. that's where you really get the insights from, right? Mm-hmm. You get the the uh, the details when he's talking to other creators or or people that are just interviewing him. And he basically said he's super depressed. Like he's super depressed when he's not working. If he's not working, he's done for. He's got to go back to work right away. He gets uh, he can't take more than two days off, or he gets crazy yep. depressed. Um, and I and I noticed a, a post here, and I mean that's his identity, right? So like, yep. if he stops doing that, what does he do then? Like imagine mm-hmm. he sold his channels when those guys like offered him a billion dollars, like for yeah. His channel, right? And now, can, I, can, yeah. can I add something yeah. on Mr. Beast? Sure, because I I too listen. I call it creator porn because I listen to a lot of his interviews yeah. to like fuel myself up. He also has like he cannot be seen anywhere publicly. Because if he's seen publicly, the kids, one kid will snart, start uh, Snapchat or whatever, a TikTok with their friends. Yep. And he was in the, in the airport in Santiago, Chile, hiding with a hoodie. 
and some kids saw him in Chile. And within 25 minutes, they had swarmed the airport with fans. Yeah. I and see. so, so imagine that. Imagine what you just said. You're a workaholic. You can only get value from your work. And then you can never be seen in public in the same place for more than 20 minutes or else you like that sounds like a prison. That sounds not fun to me at all. I, I'd right. rather be the guy walking through the airport with sunglasses on and a fake mustache, right? Yeah, just, exactly. Groucho Marx, right? Um, <laughs> so, so it's just like, holy. And meanwhile, I don't know. But he loves it. 80, 80%, so. 80% of kids under the, you know, under the age of, you know, 25 want to be professional YouTubers. Yeah. Like, and again, I think it's just, it's that thing. I had that moment and I don't think Mr. Beast knows that. And look, there, there's the other side of that coin is being a master of your craft is a deeply rewarding thing, but also being a slave to your craft can be a jail of your own making. 100%. And none of us know where Mr. Beast falls in his own head on that continuum. Does he feel a prisoner of his own making or does he feel like the master of his craft? The reality is he's probably bouncing back and forth all the time between both extremes. Sorry, I interrupted you. You're gonna no, you're, you're totally good. I, there's, no, there's no rules for interrupting. <laughs> interrupt all you want. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I know he went. he's going to a lot of like things now that are not creator related. He's almost mm -hmm. like going to do more interviews. He's going to make like new friends that are outside of his little, like his little clique where, you know, in North yeah. Carolina, he's making all these videos. So he's like, he's actually making an effort to get out there. So someone somewhere, or maybe it's him realizing he needs more than mm -hmm. this because he just passed 200 million subscribers right yeah. and with that comes hey what do i do next because yeah let's just say you have a billion subscribers on youtube what then like you eventually yeah. want an exit like you're not you can't make videos until you're like 70 like he says he wants to do that yeah i think he will i think what he's gonna do is kind of like what the the rest of those creators did like the logan pauls and the jake pauls like they start a podcast after they stop doing prank videos mm -hmm. now they have like one of the you know the whatever the name impulsive. of that impulsive. Thank you. I couldn't think of the name. Yeah. The impulsive podcast and it's going well, right? I think yeah. that's a natural progression. A lot of those prank, like full send podcasts also, like mm -hmm. those guys were prank video guys. Now they have like yeah. the, one of the most popular video yeah. podcasts out there. And I think that's, that's a natural way to go. And it would probably be better for his health yeah. to not do $5 million, $2 million cost videos. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of crazy to think that he's, he's doing that. And uh, I don't know, to me, I'd want some time off more than just a day or two, but, and it's funny, you, you actually wrote my Mr. Beast tells, you know, aspiring YouTubers to make a hundred videos a day. And then, you know, the thing he did say in that video, you might've gotten a little bit, just a little bit wrong. Oh but, yeah. Tell me, I don't yeah. even remember where I heard it from. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. What you said is spot on, except for he goes, make 100 videos first and then talk to me. Like okay. after you do 100 videos, then come and talk to me and tell me you're, you're not getting enough views because I made hundreds of videos before yeah. anybody even saw it. Years it took me to yeah, get to yeah, the yeah. point where, with YouTube. And I, I thought that was really interesting because he does, I mean, it, there's no question, he did it the hard way, I think. Because if yeah. you make videos, again, I, I go back to the, the analogy of I'm a, I'm a, growth guy. So like, mm -hmm. I always find like, Hey, how do I get views right away? How do I yeah. take a little bit of a shortcut here? That's not a shortcut, but it's a, sh it's kind of like a smart, like, Hey, I'm going to make this video because there's volume, there's demand out there for it. Yeah. I'm going to watch it. 
and yeah, yeah. jacking is a thing and you know, all that stuff and people will watch it and it's a faster way to grow mm -hmm. an audience base. Right. But it also has to be entertaining. That's yeah, the piece yeah. that I'd probably lack until you do it enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, an it's an interesting, it's an interesting scenario to like build YouTube from the ground up. But I think if he did make videos back in the day, that wasn't just counting to a hundred thousand or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I think he could have been successful much faster. Yeah, um, probably. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just my assumption. I don't know. <laughs> you never know, right? So you also, you said a lot of stuff in one of your videos. I watched one of your most recent videos and um, you were, you know, basically be the Tylenol. By the way, I completely agree with that. Take the pain away from your boss. Like what's the most important thing from him, right? What's causing him the most stress? Yep. Take it off his plate. Help him out with it, right? Yep. So networking is the one thing that I really, you blew my mind with the amount of networking <laughs> you do, my man. You network more than I do. Like you literally <laughs> ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people for what, 12 to 15? Yeah, 15 years, right? 13 years, something like that. How did you- Sometimes double breakfast. Yeah, tell me about the double breakfast scenario because I, I listened to it and I kind of got it, but did you- was it like one breakfast was for networking and one breakfast was to actually eat? No, both both were, both breakfasts were for networking. I only oh. ate at one of the two breakfasts. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with the video, it was just, um, well, I think the in interesting thing is is like, to me, beyond, before networking is I love people. I love people. I love a good conversation. Uh, I love hearing people's stories. Like, like, how did you end, go from A to B and B to C? And that, that's just fascinating to me, which I think is, you know, maybe it's what makes me a good writer, makes me a good podcast host. It's just, I love hearing stories and I love telling stories, right? So I'm kind of old school in that regards. And so networking for me has always just been an expression for, of how I could do that, more of that, Right. And I love to serve others. I really have this strong, strong view that if there's an idea that I have that could be helpful to someone, and it, it doesn't have to be my idea, it could be an idea that I just came across, I feel a sense of duty to share it with whoever is willing to hear it and whoever it could help. And so, and I really believe in like playing really, really long games. And I don't even, wouldn't even call my relationships with people games, but it's just like, look, if someone needs help, like I'll help them, you know, again, you got to budget things. You have to manage your time and so on. You can't give that which you don't have. But so much of my networking was just, I found people interesting. Um, we were in similar industries. So there was a lot of common tapestry of things that we cared about. We were all kind of peers. Um, one of my criteria for networking is I just like, I, I good vibes only. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, and there's plenty of people that are good vibes, caring, generous, not backstabbing. Don't get me wrong. When you net network, you know I forget what the calculation on that was. Like you know, ten thousand breakfast, you know, networking meetings, you're gonna get your share of bad apples. Um, but for the most part, right? Like I, so I give you an example of how I, I do it less now. I live in LA. It's much harder to network. Sure. But I have a list of on my phone probably like two hundred of my friends' birthdays or people I've met over the years, and for every friend, which is pretty much like on average, like every day, every other day or so, it's like oh. It's Lucas's birthday. I record them a little video, make a put a private message in, like, oh, I remember that time we had that awesome podcast interview. And, and um, I go in, I've started recently doing it. I go into, uh, I edit it on my phone. I put in like a few fun emojis and some text. And then I text it to them. Nice. That's it. But it's a very like, I'm not doing it 
to get something in return. I'm doing it because I genuinely want to wish that person a happy birthday. I wouldn't go through that effort if I just wanted some, you know, like I just say, I I like editing little videos on my phone. I find it entertaining. Um, And then it's a touch point with that person. Like, Oh, like, how have you been? How's your kid? How's this? How's that? You, You live in LA now? Like, Oh, like I come to LA all the time. So there's no like transaction in there, but it just, it just, it just creates a lot of um, uh, nodes for serendipity for both parties, not for me. Like, oh, you're you're working on this ad tech thing? Like, oh, I just did a podcast with this guy, Lucas. Like, yeah, you guys should like follow him on LinkedIn. If you want to talk to him, like I'll just, I'll connect you, right? Yeah, absolutely. So my networking, quote unquote, just always comes from that place. And so it doesn't even, there's no like task. It's just how I want to show up. And I have a, a really good memory of people's stories because I care about the story. <laughs> so like I'm fully, fully paying attention. We're on a podcast, but even if we were on a Zoom call, I would not s- switch my screen once into my email or my social, not once, or my even my text messages, unless I was expecting something from my kids, right? I'm so... You could say that that's all like tactics of a great networking. I I say, when you care deeply about other people, you become a good networker. Not you become a good networker by caring deeply about other people. Yeah, I love that. That's a great take. That's a really great take. I feel the same way about that, man. Yeah, you care about people. It's It's funny. I don't think caring about people really is that valued anymore. Like, I don't think, pe- I think people are very transactional now. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, like, like you, I'm a giver where I'm like, Hey, whatever I can do to help you, I yes. will help you. Right. If you're yeah. lost or you're feeling this way or that way, whatever it is, I will directionally help you. Mm-hmm. No problem. And there's just a lot, like you said, you, you come, you come through, you come across with some bad apples. Like that's just yep. part of life. Right. At the end of the day, it could be nine out of 10 or, you know, not that great or eight out of 10, whatever it is. And, you know, it's just that one or two that make it all worth it, right? So what are your top pieces of advice for someone that's starting off in like, let's just say the creator journey right now, besides the long game, because everybody hears that, right? Yep. What are three things they could tactically do today or, you know, in the next 30 days mm-hmm. that can make them a better creator mm. and a better collaborator, whatever it is, right? Whatever that is. I love is. that. I love that. So I would say, so we're not going to do, like I would say just, put in the reps, but let's be more specific at that. I would say um, you have to engage, you have to pick a platform that has built in audience um, growth loops. Yep. So, um, so that would mean like, it's a very, like it's, that's a con for podcasting. It's a kind of a con for, for traditional blogging, whoever still does that. I do. Um, And that's, you know, um, Instagram might be kind of a somewhere in between, right? And then you have like YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn. I don't really know well, so don't have a strong opinion there. Uh, but YouTube and TikTok. And I do think that, I mean, the future is like video is video is 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 where it's at. And so again, would, if you're a Gen X boomer or Gen Alpha, um, video, like I know Gen Xs are like, I don't like video. I'm like, yeah, I but, <laughs> but but you do you do like video, like you watch video, you know? Um, so uh, so I would say find a platform with built-in virality. That would be the first one. Um, the second one, 
I would say is, um, I would say like create a swipe file. So if you're a marketer, you know what a swipe file is. Just like when something inspires you, you you notice. And so I would say like, let's say you decided to, to, to pick TikTok. And you when you go through TikTok, just bookmark. You're like, oh, I love this video. And bookmark it, but then go back to it and say, like, what is it that I loved about it? Did I like how funny it was? Did I love the subject matter? Did I love the the way it was filmed? Did I love the music? Did I like the way it was edited? Um, and start to really pay attention of what hooked you on that video so that you can, you know, not copy, but you can be inspired. Like, because guess what? If it hooked you, there's probably like 10 million other people that it hooked for similar reasons. So you're like start an to observe, right? Yep. Steal yeah. like an artist, start to observe things that, that, um, that light you up. That would be the next thing. And then the third would be, let's see. Um, I would say start, start networking with creators that are like in your tier of an audience. So you're going to be new. So like one tier up. So that might be like people with a thousand, tick, they just cross a thousand TikTok followers or 5,000 TikTok uh, followers because they're ahead, a step ahead of you, but they're, they're, they're not like LeBron James of TikTok where you, you know, they'll probably still take DMs from you. They probably will like hop on your podcast or respond, you know, they'll, they'll help you out somehow. And so, and likewise, you can help them out because you're, you know, you're close enough to their audience. Uh, so develop, um, develop those relationships. Yeah. Okay. Those are and on that's the fourth, I would say is just stay consistent. Like you just, I, any of these, you just, you just need to do the reps. You really do. I think consistency is like such an, a, such a thing that people just don't understand. Like you have to, if you make a promise to people to put out content, yeah, keep putting out content during that time period for sure. Thanks for joining me, uh, Kay. Like this has been awesome, man. Great, great chat. And we can do this again, hopefully in like, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or something like that. And in real life, let's wow. get it done. I love that, man. Thank <laughs> you so much. I, I, yeah. Thank you so much too, for being here, man. It's such a pleasure to meet you and put you on like on the podcast and release it to my YouTube audience, which is like this big so far right now. So <laughs> it'll be there, so my much. man. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Thanks so much again, man.